Sales Tuners, Episode 84, David Premer, Chief Sales Scientist at Cerebral Selling. We talk to people with problems. And the ironic thing is we tend to talk to more of those same people with problems than those people talk to on a day-to-day basis. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Edward Teller, who said the science of today is the technology of tomorrow. Joining me today is a sales scientist. Yes, you heard that right. David Premer founded his company, Cerebral Selling, after graduating with degrees in chemistry and atmospheric science, as well as chemical engineering. I can't wait to learn how he made the transition from that education to a career in sales. But I know it was that scientific approach that led him to running sales for multiple high-growth tech startups, one of which was acquired by Salesforce, where David wound up as the vice president of commercial sales. Just a heads up, I'm still looking for a few more questions from you guys as I put together a special Ask JB episode. If you've got a challenge you've been working through and would like my help, I've got a couple of options for you. First, shoot me an email with subject line Ask JB and let me know what you got. Second, if you want to be heard on the show, You can record a voice message for me at speakpipe.com. That's speakpipe.com. It's very simple to record your question and then send me the link with the same subject line, Ask JB. Preference will be given to those voice messages, but let's see what you're working on. The email is easy to remember, jim at salestuners.com. All right, make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 84. But now, let's get to the conversation where David talks about why more people need to get into sales on purpose. I mean, I think about kind of three main things. I mean, number one, as you said, I was a scientist and got into sales by accident. And it's kind of funny that people don't become doctors or lawyers by accident, and though most of us got into sales by accident. And this is my chosen profession. It's a profession I've fallen in love with for the last 20 years. And I feel that more people need to get into sales on purpose. And so I'm here to teach the art and science of modern selling in the hopes that we can inspire more and more people to get into sales as their chosen profession. I'm also a big fan of sales education. You know, the big fan of the why. Always been very curious ever since my scientist days. Everything from why is the sky blue to why do people not want to talk to salespeople so much? And so uh, I'm really keen to explore the why of modern sales education and teach it. And then, you know, lastly, I feel like there are, are many different types of salespeople in the world. And many of us in sales are still living in the shadow, outrunning the ghost of the sleazy used car salesman. And so what I want to do is help build armies of just really amazing sales reps who their customers love, because unfortunately, it's those sales reps, the unsavory ones that I kind of just mentioned, they kind of ruin it for everyone else. And so I want to I want to help people be the kind of sales professionals that their customers love. That's what motivates me. 
I love all of that. And I'm very excited to get into all this conversation. I want to start right there with that curiosity uh, that you talk about and, and wondering why. So obviously, you know, the, the scientific background that you have, I also understand you're a certified meteorologist. So quick question for you. Are you the one that I can blame when I'm frustrated <laughs> that I have to change my plans because I was told it was going to rain and then it doesn't? You know, some people struggle to outrun the ghost of the sleazy used car salesman. I cannot <laughs> seem to shake the ghost of the meteorologist, especially when, you know, you can imagine all the teasing I get around forecast accuracy and, and the same. But, you know, it's still a game of, of probability. Um, it still has to do very much with the perception of the uh, the end user. You know, we were talking about, for example, if, if I say that it has an 80% chance of there being a torrential storm tomorrow, the question is, what does that mean for you? Well, if you're getting married tomorrow, then that may not be so good. But if, you know, you plan to just kind of be at home anyways, then the risk is not that great. And I find the sales is actually very, very similar when we're positioning the value of our solutions to uh, other people, you know, there's obviously an issue of fit there. There's a perception of risk. And uh, so actually, I, I had a newfound appreciation the last little while about how similar meteorology and uh, and sales are to each other. Well, I know in a previous uh, conversation you and I had, David, you talked about the difference between being a scientific meteorologist and basically being a broadcaster, right? And that how different those two things were. So that was fascinating to me. Uh, I, I got to ask, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with Nate Silver from the 538 blog? Uh, I don't think I am, actually. All right. Well, I got to introduce you to this guy. So yeah, he wrote a book called the, the Signal and the Noise. And it's just, it's using, you know, science and data to be able to predict things, but all with percentages of, of chance and accuracy, right? And so one of the things that he talks about in his book is what's known as the wet bias. And he talks about the notion that local meteorologists, you know, that are on the news, they're always going to say there's a higher chance of it raining than there actually is. Because if they're wrong and it doesn't rain, people will be happy. But if they give a low chance of rain and then it rains, they get furious. And again, because they're on the news, they want their viewers to be happy to come back and watch the news so that advertisers keep advertising. It was a fascinating concept. It's so true. And in fact, I mean, you know, meteorologists love when there's storms and torrential things and people tune in, right? Because otherwise, and everything's going to be fine. You know, there, there's no reason. That's why actually I feel that when sometimes when you load up your, if you have like a weather app on your phone, there's always like little flashing mm -hmm. lights and this warning, that warning, you know, just the, the threat of maybe something happening always tends to bring people back. But no, that's really interesting. I, I agree. You want to be able to kind of, you know, delight people. You don't want to be, you know, you don't want to be calling for something horrifically torrential to happen and then have it not happen. But, you know, the, the idea of your, your right probabilities and kind of erring a little bit on the side of the delight is a, is a good strategy. There we go. Well, let's get to talking about sales. So uh, as you know, David, in this show, we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that has led to your success. And so I want to start uh, first with just your sales process today. What is cerebral selling and why does a typical customer actually decide to buy from you? It's interesting. I find that especially today, and I say today, even compared to about five years ago, most um, you know of the technology vendors, and I work you know primarily with technology vendors and B two B technology, which is where I came from. Most of us find ourselves in what I call the sea of sameness. And what that means, to give you some some hard numbers, back in 2011, in the marketing technology space alone, there was about 150 vendors. And in 2017, there were 5,000 vendors. And you can't tell me that all those vendors do something completely unique, right? A lot of people are building off of ideas that were kind of previously conceived. And so the idea is most of us fall into the sea of sameness where we believe we're well differentiated, but to our customers, we kind of just all sound the same. And so, you know, I do spend a lot of time with my clients, helping them understand how to climb out of that sea of sameness, how to be differentiated. And a lot of that 
has to do with the message, the words that they use, the way they use their message and their unique value proposition to really pierce through and disrupt, if I can use a physics term here, disrupt the inertia of their target buyers who have a propensity to just keep doing what they're doing, right? You know, in a sea of sameness, when everyone sounds the same, everyone has the same value proposition to the buyer's perception, it's just easier to keep doing what you're doing. So a lot of the folks that I work with tend to be focused on how do I extract myself from the sea of sameness? The other thing that people typically uh, will work with me uh, for is a lot of the tactics around empathy. And I know we've talked a lot about empathy. Um, you know, one of the, the key reasons why people buy is the experience that they have with the sales professional on the other end. And, you know, we've all had experiences with sales professionals who acted in one way or another in an unsavory fashion. They, they pressured us too much. They, they acted in their own self-interest. They called us at an inopportune time and didn't, you know, they weren't sensitive to our feelings. And so I teach a lot of tactics as it relates to discovery and negotiation and objection handling all around how to use some really great science for how to win people's hearts and minds, be persuasive, but also harmonizing empathy. So, um, you know, again, I take my scientific approach and I apply it to uh, to the sales world around the sea of sameness um, and all of the classical tactics. And that's that's kind of my uh, my my approach. Well, there's so many different places that I want to go, but I have to obviously point this out. This is now the second time in in a month that I've had a conversation on this show where physics has been brought up. <laughs> and in the previous 82 episodes, it was never brought up. So something must be going on right now. But you're talking about inertia. I had another guest talk about lift versus propulsion and how that factors into sales. So uh, I, I just love it. David, you haven't always been the person that you are today. Uh, so let's go way back and tell me, how did you even get into sales? I know you already said it was on accident, but how did you get into sales? Timing was ideal because it was just at the turn of the dot-com boom where all sorts of tech companies were hiring you know, people with slightly atypical backgrounds to do all manner of jobs, right? It was just, you know, mad dash for uh, Mindshare. And so I ended up getting recruited to work at IBM, ironically enough, as a uh, sales engineer. Um, I, I was thankful I got, uh, I got a job offer about eight months before I graduated. And then about three weeks before I was supposed to start at IBM, I ended up in a very roundabout way that we don't have time for on the show, um, getting connected with a founder of a tech startup uh, in Toronto. It was about 20 people at the time. And uh, I was a young, young guy. I was about 25. And I said, hey, you know what? This is, this is an interesting opportunity. Everyone seems to be joining startups. Um, why not give it a try? What, what do I have to lose? So I uh, unfortunately had to decline the offer to IBM, ended up working at the startup. And you know, for me, that was the main, I have to say, honestly, the main turning point in my entire life that startup ended up growing to be a $100 million business. It grew from the 20 employees when I started to 700. We IPO'd three years into the business, and it was acquired um, seven years into the business and just got to work with really amazing people, got to wear many hats. That was kind of the story of how I got into it initially. But what kept me there was just the love and fascination with sales as a pursuit, as a career. Well, with a master's degree in chemical engineering, I have to ask the question, did your parents ever give you a hard time for all of the education that you have that you are a salesperson? <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, uh, so the answer is no, they, they have not given me a hard time. You know, parents tend to, my parents have been fantastic, but no, I mean, in, you know, to, to the contrary, it's not as though I've completely thrown away my, my science education. You know, I think back to kind of what we were talking about before, learning how to learn 
is the number one thing. I, t- I have three kids. I tell my kids all the time, the number one thing you need to do, I don't care what you do in your life, career-wise or um, academic-wise, you need to learn how to learn. And throughout my career in academia, that's all I did. I did research. I figured things out. You know, I was trying to be very, uh, you know, autonomous, uh, trying to be very resourceful. And that has been the number one thing that has served me throughout my entire career is learning how to learn. Well, let's not gloss over that. So obviously, with all the tech startups that you've worked with, all the different uh, size of scale, right? One got or one went IPO. Another one got acquired by Salesforce. You've had to learn how to learn on the job a lot. But break that down for us. What do you mean by that? And how do we actually apply that today? You know, when I think about learning how to learn, I, I come back to that question of, of why. And actually, the question of why and then how. So, you know, when you think about just, you know, sales and you're trying to figure out, okay, how do I put together a sales forecast or how do I architect my ideal sales cycle or how do I put together a sales playbook? The good news is for most of these things, there's other people in the world that have the same problem as us. And they have kind of gone down that road before and have figured it out, at least in some way or another, in their environment. And so, one of the things I think you have to be really good at if you're trying to be good at learning how to learn is a concept that I call synthesis, which is being able to take uh, items and artifacts and insights and data points from a variety of sources and apply it to your own unique situation and come out with at least a hypothesis and a starting point. And so for me, a lot of when it comes to learning how to learn is research. And of course, the internet makes it a lot easier than it, than it did back in the day, even when I was doing my graduate work. You know, you're looking up journals and photocopying them in the university library. Now everything is mostly online. So, you know, a ton of research um, is always really great to do. Getting out there, speaking to people who've done it before, I am super grateful for folks like, I mean, I, I know people, a lot, of, a lot of people know Mark Roberge, who was the VP of sales, the first VP of sales at HubSpot, who was very generous with his time back in the day when we were doing our third startup, um, just, you know, talking to me and giving me insights into kind of what they experienced and so, you know, my advice to those who are trying to grow their business is, is seek out the Mark Roberts, seek out the David Premers. I'm always happy to talk to entrepreneurs about how to help them grow their business, you know, because I feel it's almost our responsibility as entrepreneurs in the entrepreneurial community to help others uh, grow and learn. The last thing I would say in terms of learning how to learn is, and this is going to sound elementary and kind of funny, you have to read. You have to read. And I feel like reading. And I, in all in full disclosure, I was not a reader. I actually do not enjoy reading. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm some kind of undiagnosed AD, ADD where I just can't sit down and, with a book and curl up and I don't enjoy it as like a relaxing practice. I do read a lot um, because I, you know, I use time on the subway and planes and kind of captive time to read. But I found that most people don't read. And there is a ton of amazing insights that uh, people write <laughs> write down. So that's why I said it sounds funny to say people write these things down in books. And uh, you know, I would say if you can at least read one, if you're reading one book a quarter, let's say if you're reading four books a year, you will be even at that level at, at a tremendous advantage in terms of your competition, the other folks in your field. And it's a huge part of learning how to learn is just being resourceful and finding the text, the content. That can help you in your journey. So that's what I would say. You know, be resourceful. Seek out people who can help you 
Very similar to you, David. I too did not grow up enjoying reading. In fact, going through high school and all that, I don't, I can't tell you a single book I read until I got to be about 25. And all of a sudden I picked up a book and I kind of like quickly breezed through it. And I was like, hmm, I kind of like that. I picked up a few things. And now, you know, you talked about the idea of reading, you know, a book a quarter. I now try to read at a minimum a book a month. And what I've noticed when I started to read that much is I started to see a lot of different themes and patterns emerging in similar but different books. And it, it always hit me that for whatever reason, and I, I believe in the environment kind of giving back to you what you need at the right time. But anyway, uh, I would always find that I would find answers to questions in my head that was kind of floating around up there in any book that I started to read. Maybe I was just applying my own context to that content, but I always find that found that fascinating. So I love that uh, I love that you shared that. No, absolutely. And you know, it's funny. Here's a little, I don't know, everyone has their own little tactics. I love to, when I read and I read something that's kind of really interesting to me, I will, uh, I'm not a, I don't have a, a notebook. I'm not a, a tactile writer, but I will take a, I'll take out my phone. I'll take a picture of that page and I'll kind of scurry it away. So I have this whole album of photos of pages of books <laughs> that I'll go back to when I need to refer, but I will also go back down to, uh, to like an Evernote and, and take little notes. And to your point, when I hear the same thing a number of times, and for some reason in my head, it, once I hear something explained in a number of different ways, a number of times it clicks, and then I have this picture of an article or a video or, or, or an asset, and then it kind of, you know, it, it kind of manifests in me and I have to use my, my blog or YouTube. It's just kind of that outlet. Um, so I actually, you know, my advice to those who are kind of in that similar situation and they're either struggling to learn how to learn or with synthesis, is just get in the habit of when you see something you like and it, and it piques your memory, your curiosity, write it down, scurry it away, take a picture of it. And then when you've developed enough of those resources to create you know, a, 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 an artifact, do it. Seriously, I, I could just talk to you all day long about this. I want to de definitely echo that notion of, of taking pictures and, sh and starring them in Evernote. I literally probably have hundreds of pages of pictures of books that I've taken. And I put them in Evernote because if you have the pro version as soon as you take that picture, all the text becomes OCR'd. And so you can search for content inside those pages in addition to the notes that you take. So that's absolutely a great uh, notion. Let's go further, David, with this notion of learning how to learn and talk specifically about um, what I heard, I've heard you call before the credibility gap. And so for a lot of people who listen to this podcast, you know, they're, they're typically uh, younger in their sales career. And this credibility gap is, you know, they look at the experience they have and the fact that they're supposed to be calling on people who have 10, 15, 20 years experience doing a job that, well, they've never done. How do you get people to overcome that? Or, or how could listeners start to overcome that, in your opinion? And many people have been in that position where they just, you know, hey, look, I just either, I either just started in sales or I've been in sales for a little while and I started at a new company and I don't have any context or experience then. And, you know, so my three tips for building that uh, credibility is number one, write stories down, write your stories down. You know, even if you don't have credibility, there's probably someone in your company and maybe it's the CEO or founder, right, who started the company because of a particular reason, because of a mission, because of an experience they had. And then as you go through the course of your company, experiences are had by salespeople, customer success, even engineers and product people, write those down. So make sure that you are collecting those stories so that new salespeople can rattle them off as if they're your own and you, you build that mindshare. Um, number two, I would say, you know, remember who the credibility belongs to. So 
the temptation for us in sales is to say, well, you know, what I found is, or I think that, and the reality is no one cares what you think, unless you're Oprah or, you know, Barack Obama, no one cares what you think. And so on the other hand, who has all the credibility? Your customers do, right? So say, you know, well, what our customers have found or what we have found, like the royal we, right? And so the idea is remember who the credibility belongs to. So when you don't have credibility, invoke the credibility of someone else who does. And you can do the same thing by invoking data, reports, you know, insights, blog posts, and deflect that credibility to someone else. And then the last thing I talk about when it comes to credibility is just cultivating that challenger mindset. You know, most of us who work at growth companies in that one to $10 million range are, are on a mission, right? We're trying to change the world. And in doing so, we talk to people with problems. And the ironic thing is we tend to talk to more of those same people with problems than those people talk to on a day-to-day -day basis, right? So if you think, for example, you're selling into a VP of sales or marketing, you might talk to a dozen VP of sales of marketing in a day, right? And then you're like 60 of them in a week and then tons of them in a year. And how many other VPs of sales or how many VPs of sales do the people that you're calling on talk to in the same time frame? Not as much, right? So we should have this challenger mentality that, you know, hey, look, we talk to lots of people like you. We are here to change the world. We should act with high conviction. Conviction in and of itself is very intoxicating. You know, words and, and phrases said in a particular way can change someone's mind, right? And so those are my three tips for building credibility when you have none. Number one, write your stuff down. Number two, assign the credibility to someone else or something else. Number three, just cultivate that challenger mentality. One of the things I always do at the end of these uh, episodes, uh, David, is I put together my top takeaways. You're making my job very, very easy today. And I'm just sitting here writing it as we go. So uh, this is going to be fantastic. I, I want to change from the open, if you will, like that you know, initial outreach, cold call, et cetera, now to more of the, the close or, or, or closer to the close with that objection handling. And this is one of the ways I initially found you. Um, John Barrow shared an article that you wrote, which I, I definitely want to point people back to your website, CerebralSelling.com. The, the, the content that you post on there, a lot of it is long form, which I feel like is a dying uh, uh, trait or, or skill in today's world. But you have a long form piece of content on objection handling that I'm just absolutely fascinated with. It goes all the way from you know the logical portions of objections all the way to emotional. You've got five different stages. Can you talk just at a high level more about uh, you know, where that, I guess, research or where that thought process came from? We all have experiences in our life. You know, I'm a big fan of sales is life, right? Sales is life. And we all have experiences in our life of encountering objections, whether it's a child who doesn't want to go to bed and says, mom, dad, I don't want to go, you know, they don't say, oh, I don't want to go to bed. They start throwing all sorts of stuff at you. Oh, you know, there's a monster in my closet. Uh, I'm thirsty, you know, you didn't give my teddy bear a kiss goodnight. We, we see these, you know, and, and everywhere from, you know, let's say going to a restaurant. We've been standing in line at the restaurant for a long time. And then another couple kind of comes in behind us and gets seated right away. And, you know, we're thinking to ourselves, like, what the heck is going on here? Right. We go over to the host and we start to object. And so what I found is we see all of these objections, right, in our day-to-day -day lives. And the curious part of me kept asking, well, why? Like, wh why is that person objecting? And how should I how would I go about satisfying those objections? And what I found is that for every kind of objection or every type of objection, there's a hidden meaning, right? There's the root cause of that objection. And we really have to get down to that root cause. But it's not just the root cause. There's also a level of emotional involvement 
in every single objection. So some objections are very, very logical, and some are very, very emotional. So think about in sales, the example I always give is probably the most popular objection that a sales professional gets, which is price. It's too expensive. So, you know, an exercise I ask, you know, the, the folks that I train to go through is complete this sentence for me. Customer says, it's too expensive, blank. For what? Is it, is, you know, is it too expensive for the budget that we have, um, for the value that we're getting? Is it too expensive compared to uh, another solution uh, who, by the way, my buddy is the sales rep for, and I'm going to just buy from them anyway, so it really doesn't matter how expensive or how inexpensive your solution is? So there's all sorts of different varieties, right, of, uh, of objections. And so the, the real key for me is I was trying to think about, all right, well, how do we address these objections, is that it's not really about addressing the surface level objection of what is spoken. It's really about uh, addressing the intent the, the logical, the emotional um, intent of that objection is really the key to resolving it with satisfaction. And that's where the article came from. Well, and again, I, I definitely, I'll link to it uh, in the show notes here, but the five categories you had, you know, from understand, are they trying to decide? Are they trying to delay? Are they trying to satisfy? Are they trying to derail? You really get to, I, I'm going to use the word again, science, but you get to a scientific reason behind these things. And so I highly recommend uh, everyone who listens to this show, please go uh, take a look at that. David, I know we're starting to run out of time a little bit here, but I wanted to ask you, this is something that I know that you're very passionate about. And it's this notion of how people figure out what they want to do with their career. And for me, it was when, I, when I've talked to you about this before, it's this notion of not letting others influence uh, you in that. Because look, in the sales profession, we deal with a lot of people that have a lot of bravado and a lot of ego. And sometimes we make bad decisions just because we have the proximity we have to them. But go a little bit deeper with that. What do you, what do you mean by that? So here's the problem. Sales is still, you know, somewhat hierarchical or, or I guess, you know, a level-based profession, right? You come in, there's an entry-level version of sales, typically like an SDR, BDR. You work your way up to become an account rep. As you work your way up the chain of like you work on bigger deals, more strategic deals, more complex deals, um, you can then start managing people. Then you can become a second level manager. And what I find in most sales organizations is, you know, we're we're not usually a lone ranger. We're in sales. There's other people sitting beside us that do the same job as we do. And sometimes we can be unduly influenced by what the people around us want in terms of their sales career. So I would see a lot of this, especially at Salesforce, because it's a big sales organization where you can you can be there for your entire career and kind of just move up and around. And so there was often uh, you know uh, the propensity for reps to to think to themselves, oh, well I'm kind of a level one sales rep, and what I want to do right is be a level two, right? That's what you want to do, right, Jim? All right, that's what I want to do too. And you can it's very easy to get caught up right in that tidal wave of of career progression. Rather than taking a step back and thinking, hold on a second, what is it that I really want to do? Do I even want to be in sales? Sales can be a, a great stepping stone to other business careers, right? It's kind of, I call it like, it's kind of almost like a law degree. People get law degrees and they go off and do other things. Sales is like that as well. You can go in all different directions. And there's all sorts of different flavors of sales. I can be a sales engineer. I can be a you know, sales manager. I can be you know, on the, on the BDR, SDR side, be a little bit more operational, right? I can move into enterprise sales. And so I really challenge people to think about what it is they love about sales or their careers and think about where they want to go and not get caught up in the tidal wave of what other people want. There's a, if you're looking for a, a great book recommendation, there's a great book that I love on this topic. It's 
the one that I'm thinking of here is called Essentialism. It's by Greg McEwen. It's called Essentialism, the Disciplined Pursuit of Less. And it tells the story of uh, it tells the story of many things, focus, prioritization, saying no to things. But uh, the, the story of the author himself, he was from the UK, and he was in law school in the UK, and he came over to America on a summer holiday vacation. And uh, you know, he was talking to someone about you know, what he wanted to do with his career, and he said, I'm in law school, and it's going pretty well. And the, the person turned to him and said, well, hold on a second. You, I know you're in law school, but you're having, you're having a good time here being in the US, and I'm hearing you say things that you want to do, why don't you just stay here in the U.S. and, and keep pursuing these dreams? And he said, well, I, I can't do that. I'm in law school. I'm, you know, I, I should want to do that, right? Anyways, in the end, he turned, he, he ended up staying in America um, and then had this amazing, illustrious career, writing books, being a thought leader and pursuing his passion. And I've given that book, I used to keep a stack of books, by the way, for all of you, you sales leaders out there, um, if you want to help get your team into reading, uh, buy books for them. Buy books for them. Get a stack of your favorite books. Put them by your desk and allow people to just come and and take them, borrow them. Um, and, you know, it's a great way of lowering the barrier of entry. But you know, I always think back to this book, Essentialism, and a lot of the people I've given the book to have read it and have really taken to heart this message of think about what it is that you really want to do. What are you most passionate about? What direction do you want to go in to the exclusion of everyone around you saying, well, you should do this or you should do that. You will ultimately be happier. You will ultimately be more successful because you will be at the intersection of the passion, um, right, the need and that whole ecosystem where you're just going to be you know, fantastic at it. So try to block out the noise. It's especially hard in sales. But the good news is there's lots of mobility and roles that you can have in the sales profession. Just follow your, your heart and your passion. I love that we're bringing up reading for a second time in this show. One of my favorite clients, David, uh, she's the VP of sales there. She will buy a book for someone on her team based on what they need to learn at that moment. But she doesn't just buy it for them. She buys it for herself as well. And she signals this as a thing like, hey, we're going to read this book together. And I think that's absolutely fascinating because, you know, it's, it's that, that shared challenge that, you know, look, Hey, because you're struggling with this, I want to learn more about it as well. And so I'm going to read this book and then they compare notes. And she does this with at least two of her, uh, her reps a month. And so she's reading a ton, but uh, it's also forcing that notion of getting her team to read. So love that concept. I want to take a quick break, David, to say thank you to our sponsors. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away. Sales centers, you don't go away either. We'll be right back. Costello has been a sponsor of this show for several months now, so I wanted to call founder and CEO Frank Dale and ask him why exactly he built Costello. You and I have talked to a lot of salespeople, and I've yet to meet one that doesn't want to be great. But if we look at the tools that they have available to them, they're not built to make their job easier. We have CRM, and it's great for contact management. We have awesome tools like our friends at SalesLoft that will help you with cadences and, and reaching out to prospective customers. But the second we start talking to someone, we're stuck with Post-it notes, Google Docs, and Evernote templates. And if you're trying to run a dynamic sales call, that just doesn't cut it. And so what that leads to is forgetting to ask that question you meant to ask, not remembering that customer story when you need to tell it, and then data that maybe we need to understand what's going on in the business, not making it back to CRM. Connect with Frank and his team or request a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com and see why their platform is truly changing the way reps run sales calls. We're back and it's time for the money round. David, are you ready for the money round? Absolutely. Let's do it. 
All right. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? Reading, reading and pursuing knowledge that's that's not directly in front of you. Get get outside your comfort zone and read and pursue that knowledge. If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? Meeting with customers, uh, you know, my number one thing, meet with customers, that layer of abstraction, that layer of like this academic pursuit tends to go away as soon as you get in front of a customer and really experience what it's like to be in their shoes and understand the pains they have every day. So spend as much time with customers um, as you can early on. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose? Like most people, I hate to lose. I hate to lose, right? You know, you, you definitely love to win, but um, I hate to lose more so. What's a book, David, that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? Yeah, the, the, I would say the number one book that I am known for pushing on others is a book called The One Thing. It is about focus. It's about prioritization. It's about willpower. It harmonizes, uh, you know, sales with science, with life. It is uh, the one book that I push, The One Thing. Sales Tuners, if you'd like to check out David's suggestion of the one thing for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book for the one thing. And I can absolutely uh, agree that is a fantastic book. I definitely think you should uh, check it out. David, what is currently at the top of your bucket list? I would love one day to give a TED talk. You know, I, I'm just in awe. I mean, I do a lot of speaking for my job and I really love synthesis, but I think the folks that do TED talks just do them on a whole other level. You know, I love to have the luxury of an hour, two hours, three hours, a half a day to do training um, where we can get deep into a lot of content. But the people that do TED talks manage to synthesize the amazingly um, high conviction, high value points into a, a storied narrative around their topic of passion. And so as someone who's always trying to get better at my craft, which of, of which this synthesis and speaking and writing is, is part of, you know, I'd love to be able to, in a position to have a, a, the content to do a TED Talk, but have the, the, the exercise and be able to, uh, to really deliver in that kind of very succinct, passionate way content that, uh, that I love. So I'd love to do a TED Talk one day. What is the biggest piece of advice that you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today? The number one thing that you need to do to be successful in sales is to think like your customers and add value to them at every single interaction. That is the one thing that you need to do. And when it comes down to growing your career, you know we've talked about a lot of things here on the show. We've talked about learning how to learn. You need to keep getting better every single day. You know, don't, I remember I took tra- the sales training uh, a number of times uh, back at Salesforce and the trainer who was really fantastic, you know, he would often say, you know, sometimes you encounter someone in your training class who's been in training for 10 years, 20 years, but oftentimes that person has really only had one year of sales experience. They've lived 20 times over uh, instead of 20 different years. So my advice is just keep getting better every day. Do not have the same year, year over year. Keep learning, keep getting better. Before you do anything else, I highly recommend you head over to CerebralSelling.com and just take a look at all the amazing free content David has available. From long-form articles to podcasts and even a few videos, it's definitely worth your time. If you want to connect with David, he said reaching out with a personalized connection request on LinkedIn is the best way. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, learn how to learn. 
When tackling any new topic or initiative, the first question you have to ask yourself is, why? The second question should be, how? Using the notion of synthesis, take all the artifacts, insights, and data points you can find from a variety of sources, and then apply it to your own situation. This should help you determine at least one hypothesis as a starting point. And for crying out loud, pick up a book and start reading. Number two, remember who the credibility belongs to. Look, no one cares what you know or what you think. The truth is, prospects are looking for a way to prove salespeople wrong. So when you don't have the credibility, invoke those that do, i.e. your customers or external reports. When you can cite third-party research or share stories from successful customers, your story is more likely to stick. Number three, every objection has a hidden meaning. Regardless of the type of objection you hear, you have to get to the root cause of the statement. While your prospect may seem to be evoking logic, there is always an underlying emotional reason. Find it and you'll unlock the path to getting a deal done. One good exercise to go through is to state that objection and then insert a blank. If your prospect says it's too expensive, go through all the possible things that could follow that statement to get to the root cause. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there. And they stay there. What was your favorite TV show when you were a kid?